the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In a few moments, you'll hear from the Irish Times Beijing correspondent Dennis Staunton about the state of the Chinese economy. And a warning from the EU trade chief that European companies are questioning their future in the country following the introduction of new laws. In the second half of the show, Fiona Redden of the Irish Times will tell me all about the latest banking scams, which are designed to part you, which are hard-earned money. First to China. The Chinese economy has been struggling since it emerged from strict COVID-19 lockdown restrictions at the beginning of this year. Amid echoes of the Celtic Tiger, a number of its large property companies have run into major financial difficulties of late, leaving some without the homes they've paid for. And geopolitical tensions have ramped up with the West, creating issues for European and American companies operating there. Dennis Staunton is based in Beijing for the Irish Times, and he joined me on the line to discuss all of this. I began by asking him about the visit this week of EU trade chief Valdis Dombrovskis. He warned his Chinese counterparts that European companies were questioning their future there following the introduction of vague laws on national security and foreign espionage. So what are these laws and how did the warning go down in Beijing? Well, the two laws that he was talking about were the anti-espionage law, which is kind of an amended version of this law that's been around for a while, and a new foreign relations law. Those both came in this year. And a number of European businesses in China have been complaining about them. The problem with the anti-espionage law is that it redefined the scope of what is espionage. And until now, that was really defined as you know passing on state secrets or secret information to a foreign power. And now now they've said that it can also include other documents or data, materials or items related to national security or interests. And so what businesses don't know is what actually could, does this mean? You know, could we inadvertently find ourselves on the wrong side of it? And in the same way, the foreign relations law, that says that all businesses uh, and enterprises and citizens have an obligation to safeguard China's sovereignty, national security, dignity, honor and interests in the course of international changes and cooperation. And again, it also uh, talks about uh, you know, violating uh, China's interests in terms of exchanging information. Now, these, uh, you know, it may be that, uh, you know, that these are not going to affect anyone. But the problem is that businesses don't know. And China has the, what they call, they refer to these laws as pocket laws, which are the laws that are very vaguely drafted. And essentially the state puts them in its pocket and it can then take it out and use when it wants to. And what you've seen over the last year or so is that a number of foreign companies operating here, uh, you know, companies, for example, that do due, due diligence for businesses so that if you're, say, operating here in China and you want to get a company to see what the competition is up to, and say they do a kind of business intelligence sort of function, they've been raided by the Chinese authorities. And so there's a kind of a chilling atmosphere of people just knowing, you know, not knowing quite, you know, whether they're going to step out of line or not. And so the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China uh, a few weeks ago was complaining about all of this. And Valdis Dombrovskis, the EU trade commissioner, when he was here in China this week, he raised these concerns. And he said that this is really adding to a whole set of problems where European companies feel as if they're not operating on a level playing field when they're operating in China. 
Yeah, I just wonder, is it a bit of a hollow threat, Dennis? Because the West is so reliant on China for a lot of manufacturing. It's such a big market, obviously, for European and American uh, companies as well. So, And there's a huge trade deficit, isn't there, between Europe and China? So, you know, I know China, uh, geopolitical tensions are there, no question about it, and particularly over um, the Ukraine issue and um, the fact that China hasn't sanctioned Russia. But in reality, are European companies... Uh, going to walk away from their investments in China? Well, they don't want to. But what is happening, certainly if you talk to them, uh, is that some of them are are considering what they're going to do. They're just not sure of what the future is going to hold for them. And so what uh, Dombrovskis was complaining about was, one was what you were just saying, that the European trade deficit with China is huge. It's nearly 400 billion euros. And that's out of a volume of uh, about 850 billion. And so it's really massive. And this has been getting bigger all the time. And so I, I think what European companies are wondering about is, is this really a place, you know, uh, where they're going to really be able to operate successfully, that they'll have the kind of certainty. Like one reason that China was so attractive for so many years was they offered great stability. They were predictable. If you came in here investing, they could tell you you're going to, you know, you knew exactly the conditions. And they were very good at providing the things that you wanted. If you wanted to build a factory, they'd give you the land. You'd get your planning permission. If you needed uh, labor, they'd find the labor for you. You know, so, so the way China operates is that the decisions are made at the center. But in the provinces, they, these provincial governments have huge power and they have huge resources. And so they often help companies as well and they're competing with each other. So it was a great place to do business in that sort of way from, a, from the point of view of a European company. But part of that was that you could make plans in the long term and you didn't have to worry about uh, you know, political shifts because there are no political shifts because it's a one-party state. And so in that sense, you know, that suited business, whatever they regarded, they thought about the system otherwise. And so what they're worried about now is that, you know, national security seems to be more important to the government than the economy. Uh, And the government keeps sending out these mixed signals that says, you know, we're uh, open for business, we want to reassure everybody, private enterprise is very important to us, we want to trade with the world, European companies and foreign companies generally, American companies are important. And these you know, the trade with the EU and with the US has been growing, like, you know, despite all these geopolitical tensions. But, you know, so, so you're right. It's very difficult for any, uh, you know, particularly manufacturing companies that are operating here to find alternatives. Now, you've found uh, over the last couple of years during COVID, a number of them have opened other operations, say in Vietnam, in other countries nearby. But none of these really can offer what China offers, both in terms of the scale, but also usually China can offer you everything, the, the raw materials, the uh, the labor, you know, the, the know-how. And so it is difficult to replicate that. So it's certainly, you know, I don't think people are talking about, you know, a mass exodus of European companies. But what Dombrovskis is saying to the Chinese is this relationship is unbalanced. And it's, it's, it's essentially, it's politically difficult for us in Europe to keep going this way for lots of reasons. And particularly if Europeans feel as if they're not getting, you know, a fair deal when they operate in China. Yeah, and there's a big issue over electric vehicles as well, isn't there? Chinese companies have been sending a lot more EVs now into the European market and very quickly have an 8% share. And that has raised concerns uh, within the European Commission. 
Yeah, uh, the Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, she announced the other day that they're going to, uh, the European Commission is going to launch an investigation into Chinese subsidies of its uh, electric vehicles and suggesting that somehow these subsidies are unfair and that they are, uh, and so the Chinese electric vehicles are available in Europe at an artificially low price. Now, China has made an extraordinary level of progress in the electric vehicles. And, but that's really for all kinds of reasons. One is that they started uh, working on electric vehicles more than 20 years ago. In the, the five-year plan, uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, they identified this. And one reason they did was because the Chinese calculated that the Europeans and the Americans had sort of cornered the market in the internal combustion engine. China couldn't really get an advantage on that. And then the Japanese were uh, you know, way ahead in terms of the hybrid vehicles. But nobody was really doing the pure electric stuff uh, at that stage. And then really from 2009 onwards, they really focused on it. And they did subsidize to the tune of about $29 billion between uh, 2009 and 2022. The end of 22 was when the official subsidies ended. And so what they did really was that they invested in every stage of the uh, of the supply chain and of the production of these vehicles. If you think about the difference between an electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine, the electric vehicle is simpler because essentially it's a battery and it's a frame. You don't have this whole business of transmission. And so the battery and the battery cells, the battery cells are about 40% of the cost of production. And China has not only uh, secured uh, access to the raw materials that go into these, some of these are kind of rare earths, some of them they have in China, some of them they get in from Africa, but they've bought up an awful lot of the mining there. But they also have developed the technology to produce these battery cells more cheaply than they can do it elsewhere. And so they were making a lot of progress. And part of this was that, say, if you had, uh, you know, because the uh, the Communist Party said, we're going to go for these electric vehicles, if you were a provincial governor and you found that you could offer a factory to an electric vehicle manufacturer, that was good for you because you were doing what, uh, you know, you knew was in the interests of the party and it also meant that you were going to get support for it. And so these companies would get cheap loans from state banks. They would get, uh, you know, a site to build their factory. They get, you know, lots and lots of help in that sort of way. And then... Uh, you know, they they developed these vehicles. And nobody really quite noticed how good they were until earlier this year at the Shanghai Auto Show it was the first time this, uh, this had been operating properly since the end of the pandemic. And all of these European and American uh, uh, executives went over and they suddenly saw how good these Chinese vehicles were. Not only were they cheap, but they were also good. And so obviously Tesla had been producing here. They, they had this gigafactory outside Shanghai for a number of years. And that also helped uh, China because China also subsidized Tesla, but they got a lot of know-how and they, uh, you know, they basically learned from one another. And so really what's happened is that, uh, you know, what we've discovered is that China can produce these vehicles. Not only are they, uh, are they cheaper than you're getting them in Europe, but they're actually better in some ways. And again, part of that is to do with another advantage which China has, which is that because they've got this really, really developed e-commerce and online uh, system of commerce, they get all this feedback constantly from their customers. 
And so they, uh, you know, and again, if you look at, say, the, the average age of the car buyer in Europe, it's about 50. In China, it's about 36. And these people are constantly online and they're all, and so, so what it means is that the Chinese companies can innovate much more quickly and they can adapt and they can adapt their models to suit the market. And again, uh, you know, the consumer is looking for something different. In the old days, if you were looking at an internal combustion engine, the fact that, you know, say, uh, you know, BMW would have some engineer sitting in a basement for four years developing the most perfect engine and it would give people that thrill or whatever it, it gave them. It's different now because it's really about the battery and then also the dashboard and all the kind of entertainment that you have in the vehicle because it almost drives itself. And so so it's a completely different kind of business and business model. And the Chinese are just a bit ahead. So anyway, this is one of the reasons why uh, China has been able to get in there quite quickly. Now, the Chinese would say that they actually uh, are still not selling that many electric vehicles in Europe. But there's no question, but they are ahead of uh, of their competitors when it comes to, you know, particularly producing affordable models. So what's China's reaction to all of this negativity coming from the European Chamber, coming from uh, the European Commission, um, and and I guess probably from America as well? So with, with the European companies operating in China, they say, well, you know, uh, you've nothing to worry about. And, you know, we've always been welcoming you here. And they're generally, they've got fairly good relationships with them. Uh, where the European Commission is concerned, basically, China says this is pure protectionism. The reason that you're doing this is because, and it's kind of true in a way, basically, the Chinese stole the European market in solar uh, panels. Basically, they just, you know, uh, you know, the Europeans started doing it. China learned how to do it uh, well, quickly, to scale, and essentially just wiped everybody else out. They don't want to see this happening with the uh, electric vehicles. The Europeans don't. And so what the Chinese say is, look, you know, uh, this is uh, has nothing to do with fairness. This is uh, this is purely a protectionist measure. And, you know, and that's why you're doing it. And of course, the one reason that the uh, Europeans are doing it and the Americans are not is because although the United States generally has a very low tariff for uh, imports of motor vehicles, uh, Trump uh, when he was president, introduced this special tariff for China. For China, so there, there's a 25% tariff there. So they are, to some extent, protected in a way that the Europeans are not, where the tariff is much lower. And so the thing is, so what the, the Chinese said, you know, are, they haven't said it explicitly, but they're, they've made it clear: if the Europeans, as a result of this investigation, decide to impose punitive tariffs on uh, Chinese electric vehicles, well, China can retaliate. For instance, against uh, European motor manufacturers who still dominate the market in high-end internal combustion engine conventional motor cars in China. And so you have you know, companies like Volkswagen, BMW have huge operations here, manufacturing and selling. So they would be vulnerable. And that's why the German car industry has been very wary of this move because they fear that, that they could you know, be hit by retaliation. But the Chinese don't have to confine the retaliation to that industry. They could also, for example, hit the European luxury goods industry. And China's a huge market for, for that. So, uh, you know, so it is a risky business to start any of these trade wars because you never know where uh, they're going to end. And even if it's quite clearly in nobody's interest to escalate these things, as you know, 
things can get a bit out of control. And one of the reasons people are a little bit worried about what the uh, what von der Leyen is doing is because of the timetable. These investigations, they basically have to conclude within 13 months. But at about the nine-month stage, they can decide, right, we've kind of got enough information now that we've decided that uh, we'll put in some uh, some temporary tariffs. You know, we take these measures for now, and then we'll do our final measures in a few months' time. And that nine-month mark uh, will come around the time of the European Parliament elections. And those have uh, a dual significance. One is that, uh, you know, say for uh, Macron in France, who's been pushing this business because he wants to, uh, try, he wants France to, to become a, a leader in terms of battery production, and he wants to keep the Chinese out. So it's, it's also he thinks that might be good for him politically. And also Ursula von der Leyen is believed to want another term as the European Commission president. So, uh, you know, there are these political factors which may be feeding into it and which also may lead people to take decisions that they might not otherwise take. And certainly there are reports from inside Brussels that DG Trade, the trade exports experts in the commission, were also a little bit wary about this particular move. Is there much Irish investment in China, Dennis? There's a certain amount of uh, of investment. The uh, Kerry Group were here. There's less construction than there used to be. There used to be there used, there used to be quite a lot of that. There's, there's not so much that. There are Irish people involved in uh, you know the, uh, the aircraft leasing business. Obviously, is still you know important, but it's not you know uh, you know it's you know it's a big export market for certain things and for say uh, so including for high end uh, you know uh, electric. Uh, super chips, you know, for electronics, and then also for medical devices, for all of the things that, you know, that Ireland produces, it's a market for them. But Ireland tends not to be sort of, you know, in terms of the politics of the trade uh, relationship, you know, it's, you know, because trade is negotiated through the European Union, Ireland doesn't have, you know, a particularly sort of strong voice in there. What's life like over there at the moment, uh, Dennis? Because we hear all these stories about the Chinese economy um, struggled after coming out of very strict uh, lockdown uh, restrictions. And also the property market over there. A lot of the big property developers in China are suffering major financial issues, aren't they? Yeah, I, I think what everybody expected really was that after the end of uh, the zero COVID measures, which was the end of last year, and they were so strict and everybody was expecting that, you know, China would come back, uh, there'd be a big bit of a spending spree and a resurgence. And there was a bit of a spending spree, but not that much. And uh, so what you've seen really since then is that the recovery has been pretty feeble. And there are, uh, you know, a number of factors uh, involved in that. One is a simple question of confidence. People are just, they don't really, really feel confident about going out and spending money. Businesses don't feel that confident about uh, money, about spending money either. So people are saving rather than borrowing or spending. And then, as you say, there's the big problem with the property sector. The property sector in China, rather like in Ireland in the bad old days, was not only huge, but important to everyone. Everyone was kind of, you know, making a lot of money out of it. So if you were buying a property, it was likely to go up in price. If you were the local authorities, you made an awful lot of your money out of leasing the land. Uh, because basically, the like all the land in China is owned by the state. And, uh, uh, the, and the way in which uh, local authorities make their money is 
they will lease it to you to a developer for 70 years for residential, 35 years for commercial uh, development. And then uh, you, know, they, you develop whatever it is. And also one of the quirks of the Chinese system is that you buy the, the, the apartment before it's built. And so they, uh, so if I decide I'm going to develop, say, a thousand apartments, I kind of don't have to do very much apart from sort of dig a little bit of a hole in the ground before I start selling these, and then you can, uh, then I sell them, and everything is fine as long as the money keeps flowing. But then when the music stopped, uh, you know, and the music stopped a few years ago, partly because the Chinese authorities decided that the thing was overheating. And they wanted to cool it down a bit. And they took a number of measures to cool down the market. And they were unfortunately a bit too successful. And so what happened was particularly private developers, basically until, say, last year or thereabouts, about half of the market was private companies and half was state-owned enterprises. And an awful lot of the private companies are now gone to the wall. And they uh, they found themselves unable to fulfill their obligations, either debt obligations, they were hugely indebted. But also just in some cases, they've been unable to finish building these apartments that, uh, you know, that, that they'd already been paid for. So all of that, uh, you know, plus uh, a very high level of youth unemployment, you know, China produces about 11 million graduates every year from university. And these people are now emerging into a labor market where uh, the labor market needs labor, but it doesn't need labor for the kind of jobs they'd like. So it needs people to uh, work in factories or to deliver food or whatever. But it doesn't need people who've just got their second degree in, you know, electrical engineering or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And so these people now are coming out and finding they can't get the sort of jobs that they would like to. They can't afford to go and, uh, you know, rent even. And so then often them are staying, living at home. And their parents are wondering if they're ever going to leave. And so it generally sort of creates this atmosphere where nobody really has the confidence to go out and start spending. And the government over the last few months has been bringing in various measures to try to stimulate uh, things a bit in terms of, for example, making it easier to get a mortgage, you know, easing rules that they had been tightening because they'd basically been doing everything to stop people buying extra properties. And now they're sort of easing that a bit. And there are some signs, like just the latest figures over the last few weeks, there's some little flickers of hope. But it's still, uh, you know, China and the Chinese economy is not where it would have wished to have been at this stage after the, uh, the opening up. Dennis Staunton, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a short time out now. After the break, I'll be chatting to Fiona Redden of the Irish Times about the latest banking scams. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Criminals are constantly changing their tactics in a bid to access our bank accounts and rip us off. Fiona Redden wrote about the latest scams this week in the Irish Times and she joined me on the line to discuss them. I began by asking Fiona to tell us about the latest scams in operation. 
Yeah. Hi, Kieran. Um, I think everyone will know, have experienced it in some, to some degree themselves now. Um, the figures keep rising on fraud and scams. Last year, the Banking Payments Federation of Ireland, which would cover, you know, banking payments type fraud, suggested that there was about 100 million lost in people's money through fraud last year. And of course, the longer it goes on, the more sophisticated these scams, scammers are, are going to get. Um, popular ones, you know, we've all, I think, gotten those emails where they say you had a package that was to be delivered. You know, you've got to verify or give some payment details here before you can get the package. Obviously, they're just trying it. You know, it's just by chance. But if you get enough people, how many people? We all have stuff delivered these days. So you will get a certain percentage possibly filling that out. You get texts from your bank saying that, um, again, you know, you need to verify or this payment won't go through. There's been more recent ones saying that they're from your son or your daughter and they're in financial trouble and they need to, you, they need you to give them money very quickly. Um, then, then there's got kind of more old school investment type fraud, you know, where it's a company and they could make up a name that sounds almost real. And um, maybe offering you a great deal, you know, particularly interest rates in recent years, I suppose. Um, again, if you send the money, the money is gone and there can be sometimes you can get it back. But that's the tricky situation with all this fraud at the moment. Yeah. So of that 85 million, Fiona, how much was actually retrieved or did that 85 million essentially all go up in smoke? Well, that's an interesting point because I don't think we know how much was retrieved. And that's kind of a key question. And I suppose in time. Maybe we'll demand more from the financial institutions, you know, we'll be looking if I'm going to give you my money, how much did you lose on fraud and how much did you recover? And then you can kind of benchmark these financial institutions against each other, because um, if they don't have very strict um, anti-fraud measures in place, it really is more of a risk for you to give your money over to them because the legislation isn't always in your favour if you do lose your money. You had a, a cautionary tale, uh, one example of a, a consumer who signed up with the Dutch bank bunk. And we'll come to that uh, in a moment. But before we do, just what are AIB and Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB, the kind of three uh, remaining retail banks here? What are they saying to customers? What advice are they giving to customers as to how they can avoid this fraud? What are they saying are do's and don'ts? Yeah, well, the, first of all, the do's, I mean, you know, if you get an email, just ignore it. Unless you have this, is but but there is kind of a, a tricky area, isn't there, where it could be real and um, you might get a text and maybe you opened an account or you transferred money. So it could be real. Bank of Ireland have a very good new thing and I'd expect the other banks to follow. You can just copy the message you get from a text and send it to them and they reply pretty much instantly to say if that's if if they actually sent that message or not. So that's a good way of doing it. Um, If you get a phone call, say please hang up and I'll call you back. You know, it's just an easy way of um, verifying. And obviously you'll be expect to go through to their call centres as opposed to some random person picking up the phone. Um, be prudent. Make sure that the the financial institution is authorised. Central Bank has a register of all these institutions on um, its website. Um, and then if you do feel, unfortunately, if you do feel that maybe you have been the victim of fraud, you need to get onto your bank instantly pretty much the minute you think about it because um 
as we can go into with the with the bunk story, the banks do expect a certain amount of responsibility on you if you have been fraud. It might sound very unfair because you were completely unwitting party in all of this, but unfortunately, um, it can go against you down the line. So get onto your bank. They all have these anti-fraud um, helplines at the moment. You also need to possibly notify the guards, take screenshots, take as much as you can, you know, to build a case against these um, fraudsters. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the case involving uh, Bunk. This was a reader who signed up to the Dutch uh, financial group. It's one of the the newer um, banks on the block, I suppose, uh, only to have their account emptied within hours of opening it. Tell us about that, Fiona. Yeah, and I mean, it should be said, you know, Dutch, the bank, you know, it's a fully regulated um, Dutch bank, you know what I mean? It's, it would be authorised under freedom of services probably in Ireland. So, you know, it's, there's nothing that would be untoward about the institution itself. But um, unfortunately, the customer opened the bank account and she was defrauded, you know, within a couple of hours. First of all, 5,000 was taken out and then subsequently another 5000 now he would say that he didn't he never got a notification from bunk to um tell him about this but of course if someone get, manages to hack into your account they can turn off notifications they can do a lot this particular scammer actually had to upgrade his account because they wanted to split it into two so then he got a bill on top of everything else for 899 from the the bank um so he's still in the process of trying to get it back it seems that there is a little difficulty because the bunker is saying, I just should just bring in the central bank's view on this, you know, because um, typically if you lose your money, what happens is the bank will try and get it back, first of all. So they'll go to the counterparty where the money went and try, get, try and get it back. If you clicked on any of these emails, you know, these kind of phishing things, they might say, you know, it's your own fault. Unfortunately, tough luck. So you can't get it back. But then there's this other um, thing which is known as gross negligence. Now, you or I might say there's no way I was grossly negligent because it sounds like you'd have to do something extremely bad. But if you got, like in that case with Bunk, if you got some email notifying you of something happened in your account and you didn't take action, banks are entitled to treat. I mean, it's a very grey area legally. They can see that as being grossly negligent, that you didn't notify the bank straight away. And therefore, they won't reimburse you the money that you lost through fraud. And unfortunately, it seems to be something like this with Bunk. But um, again, it seems like the, the person, you know, they really didn't do anything at all that would um, make them responsible for this. So hopefully that case can be um, completed favorably. But there is a lesson there. And to go back to my earlier point, you know, about getting more information from financial institutions as to how they treat these cases if you do end up losing money. Very difficult though, Fiona, isn't it, for a lot of people? I mean, everybody has a busy life now. You have so many communications channels. The banks really want you to deal with them online. And sometimes it's hard to, to know whether a communication is is fraudulent or, or not. Um, it's very difficult. And of course, a lot of these fraudsters, you know, if they're going to try and hack in, maybe they'll take the money out, you know, at 2 a.m. while you're fast asleep. You know, you're not going to yeah. notice any notifications then either, are you? And we've seen cases with AIB where they're actually using the identities and the emails and all of that kind of stuff of people who work for AIB. That's another AIB, yeah, recent issue. Um, And I mean, you can reply to that email and it'll go to joe at AIB.ie, you know, so it all looks very legitimate. But again, you just have to ask yourself, you know, 
Am I expecting communication from the bank? Should I be expecting? Maybe I'll just give them a ring myself and see before you respond to any of those emails. Sometimes it'll turn out that it was legitimate, but it's better, I suppose, to take the time and be safe rather than sorry, because um, it's not automatic that you'll be entitled to your money back, unfortunately. And Fiona, is there any move by the central bank or by the government maybe to tighten consumer legislation around this uh, and, and maybe make it so that a bank has to make good on a case, for example, like the bunk case? As far as I know, no, there's been no talk in that area. I mean, I suppose because the losses could be um, very sizable, couldn't they? If if they had to to give everything back, they will say that they're better off tightening up, you know, the anti-fraud measures on that side rather than guaranteeing to give all the money back on the other side. But I do think the central bank has a role. And even if it's just this kind of a fraud metric that you can see, um, I mean, if a particular institution is constantly a victim of fraud, you know, it, it, it gives a good warning, I think, to consumers, doesn't it? More information is definitely needed across this whole area. Mind you, 85 million might not, not capture all the fraud in the market, of course, but 85 million is only a fraction of what the banks are making in profits. Well, absolutely. And I mean, again, to go back to that gross negligence um, point, whether it's legal or morally right, I mean, you know, it, if a person really hasn't done anything to encourage this type of fraud, it would seem that the, the institution should really um, stand up and pay it over, shouldn't they? OK, Fiona Redden, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Fiona Redden and Dennis Thornton for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world.